Hello, and you're listening to STFU, We Are Not Done Talking Yet, with your hosts, Danielle Warman and Charlotte Gabert. In our podcast, we discuss current events, popular culture, writing, books, movies, and women's lives. Today, we have a guest who is in Portland, Oregon. Her name is Meg Weber. Meg is an author, a writer, and she has a book coming out in February called A Year with Mr. Lucky. But we're going to talk to her about her book and anything else that comes up. Hey, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Sharla. Hi, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get to talk to you both today. Well, we're glad you're here. And I'll just say a little, um, you got introduced to us by my dear friend, Monica Welty, and she's also your dear friend. I've known Monica for about 16 years, maybe a little longer. And I always say she was such a punk then. I, she couldn't have been 24 <laughs> years old, maybe like 25. And um, and she was a, a NIA teacher in, in San Francisco. And we've been friends since then. So I've watched her, you know, change. She got married. She had children. She had a, you know, a terrible tragedy. And I've just seen her blossom into, um, yeah, very different actually. So anyway, she introduced us to you, and I, and what little we know about you, um, having read um, a couple of your blogs and your books. You're sorry, the beginning of your upcoming published book. You're just a talented woman. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yes, I think that's a fair statement. And I love that you and Monica have that connection through Nia. I have never done Nia myself, but my sister, um, who I write about in my book, um, loved Nia. It was one of the things that brought her pure joy in her life. And it was a really important thing in her life while she was here. So um, I love that that's part of this conversation. Wow. Um, that's how I know Charla. I swear, I think, uh, I think 75% of the people I know in my life are from Nia. You know, and then Portland, of course, is the headquarters. So it's kind of like the, Portland has just spread across the nation connecting people via Nia. Right. Yes, and Portland is such a headquarters for writing, too, and there's so much strong, beautiful, powerful writing community here that I, Portland has always been my home, and as a writer, I feel really fortunate that I get to live here and be around all these amazing writers. You know, we had, we had the opportunity to study with with Lydia um, last summer when we were, when Danielle and I were at Esalen Writers Camp. Mm which was unbelievable. Oh, and you know what? The third person we interviewed for our podcast, I think it was number three or four, was Rima Zaman. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it was like all these fantastic writers live in Portland. Yeah. Yeah, I've worked with Lydia um, uh, several times and she, I actually did a manuscript boot camp with her on this book, A Year of Mr. Lucky. And it wouldn't be the book that it is without working with Lydia. Um, I already mentioned my sister briefly, but um, part of what happens in the book is that my sister dies by suicide. And um, in the first draft of the book or the draft that Lydia read the first time, um, 
I was going along telling the story of this relationship with Mr. Lucky and then I just sort of dropped in the middle of it somewhere. Oh yeah, and my sister died by suicide. And then I kept going. And it was Lydia most of all that said to me, yeah, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you can't just drop that in the middle of your book and not give us context beforehand about your sister and why it matters to you that she died. Um, we need more of that. And so I went back and I added a whole sub thread in my book um, that is about my sister and my family and what those relationships mean to me. And it really rounded out the book. And it also rounded out me as a character and as the protagonist in the book um, in ways that were really necessary. So I thank Lydia for that because um, it wouldn't be the book it is without her. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I have not gotten that far. I'm sorry to report, but um, I, 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 yeah, I was. So tell us, okay, tell us a little bit about like how you described the book. You know, you got your the blurb and sort of give us that background about what the book is. So the book is about a relationship that I was in after a divorce that I went through. I was with my. Um, former partner for 14 years. And we have a kid that we raised together that's now a teenager. And um, this relationship started maybe six months after my divorce. Um, I, part of what I was looking for after we broke up was I wanted to be in relationship with men. And um, I wanted a particular kind of relationship and a kind of sexual relationship that involved BDSM. And so that's what I found with him. The part that I sort of skipped over was that it was supposed to be really casual and no strings attached. And apparently I'm not wired that way. So I fell hard for him. He did not fall hard for me. Um, and that's sort of the structure of the book. And um, we are both writers, he and I. Um, he, he's just a casual writer. He hasn't done any publishing or anything. But so the first three weeks of getting to know each other were all in email back and forth. So there's emails between us that are threaded throughout the book. And he gave me permission to use his actual emails. So I didn't have to try to recreate him as a uh, character in the book, he wrote himself as a character, which was great. Because um, then anything that he isn't super fond of about himself as a character, he wrote himself. So I was a little bit off the hook that way. You know, um, but the book, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. But to be off, the I was really excited. In yes. Possibly vilifying someone, possibly whatever. Anyway. <laughs> Right. No, it's true. I was really grateful for that. There's still plenty of things I say about his him as a person um, that he didn't necessarily love, but he believed they were true. Mm -hmm. um, so the book is about our relationship and um, the ways that we connected. And then it's also about me going through this process of finding myself again as a sexual being after a 14 year marriage uh, where there were a lot of things between us, but sex wasn't one of them. And um, so I came back into myself as a sexual being and also finding my own sense of self and my own voice. And so the book is also uh, about me doing that. Um, I was getting back into writing after a hiatus um, 
while I was involved with him. And I knew pretty early on that I was going to do something with this relationship. So I was writing my way all the way through it. So that when I sat down to actually create a book out of it, I had a whole bunch of source material above and beyond just our emails. I had, yeah, that was going to be one of my questions because um, the, well, okay. So yeah, the, your book, the parts that are, um, they're not really diary entries, but they're, you're, you're describing of what's going on. Um, had so much, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Psychological precision. Um, I, I was just really blown away with that. And I, I could tell that there was just like this incredibly deep sort of analysis, understanding effort to try to understand yourself that was really amazing. Um, I mean, I guess you have a psychology background or- I'm, I'm a mental health therapist in private practice and I have been for 10 years. You so I have a lot of clinical because training. honestly, I was I was really blown away by the sort of psychological um, accuracy, I guess is what I would say, or the precision with which you described your own reactions and your feelings and your um, and your effort to try to understand what you were feeling um, and experiencing through this whole thing. Oh, okay. Can I go back to the emails for a minute? Okay, yes. emails were just unbelievably fascinating. I mean, because the, especially the beginning when you're getting to know each other and you're basically kind of negotiating the relationship, what it's going to be like, what the parameters are. Um, and it is, and it's so like open, frank. I mean, it is sort of the opposite of any sexual relationship I've ever seen. <laughs> where you know usually you get involved and then things get negotiated as you go along so I just found that like really really fascinating um and and the and I and, and there was this incredible intimacy established through this because you're still physically strangers at this point Right. And for me, that part of the negotiation and the getting to know each other in that way was a huge part of the fun of it. I was desperate to meet him in person, but I really enjoyed the negotiation and the, the verbal banter that we were doing. And for me, I learned how to negotiate like that through my involvement in kink. Uh, when I first was involved in BDSM, which there's an essay in the book um, that references those early experiences, I didn't know how to talk like that. I was raised Catholic. I'm from a very conservative family and we didn't talk about sex. Uh, so for me, that is how I learned those skills and how I learned to say, I like this and this, but not that. And these are my limits and these are my boundaries. And so for me, that part is fun because I've learned how to do it. You know, this is reminding me of something. Okay, at one point there's a description that I guess it must be the blurb of or someplace where you describe yourself as an ethical slut, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that phrase really fascinated me. And so of course I had to go online and Google this. And then I found a book called The Ethical Slut that I'm sure you're familiar with. 
Well, tell our listeners, like, what is that all about? Where is that coming from? So the book, The Ethical Slut, and it's been years since I've read it, but it was uh, foundational for me in understanding um, relationships, especially non-monogamous or open relationships. Uh, for me, that's where I, part of where I learned um, how to make those work and how to, how to handle things like jealousy or insecurity and the idea that those things do exist and those are you know emotions that we as human beings have and it isn't there's not some kind of magic that if you're non-monogamous you don't experience jealousy that's not how that works um, what you need to do is learn how to talk about it and understand this is what's happening for me and this is why i'm feeling these feelings to be able to work it out with your partners and the ethical part for me and and they talk about this in that book too by Janet Hardy is is open clear transparent communication if that isn't happening whatever you're doing in your relationships doesn't feel ethical to me and as a therapist I also work with couples and people in multiple partner relationships and that's a really big tenet that I talk about with them is that clear, honest communication needs to be the foundation of these connections, or it's just going to blow up. It might blow up anyway, but it's definitely going to blow up if you're not doing that. Well, another thing I was going to say about the emails is that they, um, they, it's kind of like an old fashioned literary form. It's this epistolary form. And it, it was it was so fascinating because it's you know the content is extremely like modern and highly sexual and um, although not necessarily in a way that is designed to create desire in the other person it was it was a little bit more business like but um, there was still that kind of overcoming the distance through words um, that. I don't know, I just felt like I was reading um, something like a 19th century novel, like a little bit, right? Obviously, it's email and mm -hmm. it's today, but there was something really charming yeah. about it, you know, um, very old fashioned, because even now, like emails are kind of the substitute for letters, I think. I mean, I know some people who write letters, but I don't really anymore. That's the way I used right. to. And the way you're talking about that, I was really fortunate. We were talking about Lydia a little bit earlier. Um, Lydia was kind enough to write me a beautiful blurb for this book. And that's one of the points that she made was that I took this um, more old fashioned form of the epistolary novel and I modernized it with you know, email and transgressive content and um, that that was one of the things that she really loved about this book, which you know, to have one of my writing heroes say she liked my book is beyond for me, so. Well, I thought the structure of it was really quite brilliant. I mean, you kind of, you had the emails threaded through, you had um, not exactly diary entries, but you know, what was, I mean, they might've been drawn from your diaries or, or just from what you were writing about the experience. Um, and then there's just sort of the storytelling part of this of it, and so it was re it was really interesting the way you wove those different types of material together. Really enjoyed that. How long did Thank it take you. you to write, Meg? 
So the relationship happened in real time starting in 2013 and the book comes out uh, in 2021. I think I've been actively working on it as a book for six years. By the time it comes out, it will have been six years. There was a lot of having to edit and having to, um, I cut out a lot of email. We were really prolific. Okay, especially me, I was really prolific in the emails. He was a little more curt. Um, so I had to weed through a lot of that. And then I had to turn it from, these are some things that happened to me into a book with an arc and a narrative that people could follow. Those are my favorite words, arc and narrative. <laughs> Those are my neither of those happening in my writing. That's why they're my favorite words. I'm like, are they going to say that again? <laughs> anyway, I hate those words. I just want to say, and then this, and then that. Yeah, you yeah. reader, and you figure out the arc. No, but I know that that's just that's incredibly lazy writing. Um, was it was it easy to manage your time as a full time uh, therapist, and you're also a mom? It was not so. How did you manage your time to write? Oh, that's a great question. So in the early days of writing this book, uh, I had recently divorced my partner and co-parent. And so we moved into a duplex side by side so that we could raise our kid um, in close proximity. And so I suddenly had time when I wasn't actively parenting. Uh, and then I had the e evenings after my kid went to bed. At that point, my kid was six and seven years old when I started writing the book. And so I did all my writing at night after they went to bed. And I was in, I did a lot of online classes. Uh, Ariel Gore is one of the writers that I work with and uh, she teaches classes through the Literary Kitchen online. And so most of this book, the early drafts came about 2,500 words at a time as a weekly assignment for one of Ariel's classes. And I just chunked it together in that way, got feedback from Ariel and some other really amazing writers. And that's how the book was written. So I would work all day. And then, you know, the nights I had my kid, I would, you know, make dinner and do all of that, put the kid to bed. And then I would spend an hour or two or however long till my eyes wouldn't stay open anymore, trying to turn this into a book. That's, yeah, you really, you really burn the midnight oil, as we say. I did. Is, is this your first book? Have you ever written a book it before? Is. Wow. It is my first book. I'm sure it I've won't be your last. Other, it, I hope not. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, very far along, although probably not as far as I wish, with the next book that happens uh, when this book ends. Um, and I had a whole idea of what that second book was going to be. And then I did some work with a book coach earlier during COVID time. And uh, the book told me it wants to be something kind of like that, but actually really different. So now I have to re re-understand what it is the book wants to be. But uh, that, that next book will be a lot more about the grief um, of losing my sister. Um, I've been through significant amounts of grief and loss in my book. Uh, I mean, in my book, that too, in my life. Um, uh, both my parents have now died. My sister, I lost a best friend when I was 25 to a strange accident. Um, so 
the next book is going to be a lot more about those experiences of grief and loss and how I have moved through them. I have, a, I have another question. So you were writing and you took all these classes. How, did you have to find an agent to find you a publisher? Is that the natural way that it went? That's one way to do it. I tried to go the traditional route and find an agent for this book. Um, and as we, uh, as Charlotte, you mentioned earlier, you were talking a little bit about sort of the erotic content in the book, but that it isn't there for the sake of erotica. Those are my words, not yours. But that is part of what made this book really hard to place because it doesn't really fit neatly into a category. It's memoir, but it has erotic content, but it's not meant as erotica. And so I, you know, I, I queried, I think I stopped at 40 rejections from agents and I got really close a couple of times, but um, most agents would read the sample I sent and say some version of this seems really great and exciting, but I don't know how I would sell it. And so I ended up approaching this small press uh, who has published a couple of my standalone pieces in anthologies. Um, and I thought, well, I'm just gonna send them my book. I'm gonna query them and see if they wanna publish my memoir. And they did. So it's a really tiny press um, that's in the Pacific Northwest. I'm really grateful. Um, and I, so I wasn't able to do the agent route so far. Who knows what with my other books will happen, but not with this one. You know, yeah, I was trying to think of books that this could even remind me of. And I, it did feel uh, kind of unique. You know, I mean, obviously, okay, it's a memoir, so it fits into that genre. Um, it did make me think of a book that I read a couple of years ago, and then I recently came across it again. It's called A Downheeled Woman. Have you ever run across that book? It's I about haven't. a woman who is, she's actually, she was a Walnut Creek teacher who, she retired from teaching. So let's say she's in her 60s, um, single. And she puts an ad in the New York Times, um, no, not the New York, <laughs> the New York Review of Books um, to try to meet men. And she says something like, I'd like to have a lot of sex before I die, preferably with someone I like. Um, and if you need to turn on Trollope work for me, something like that. Okay, so then it is a book about all the replies she gets, the various men that she meets up with. Um, and it's, um, and so it's like about her sexual adventures late in life, the end. Mm -hmm. But it's, it is um, not as explicit. Um, it's mainly sort of tongue-in-cheek you know that's sort of funny um and it has a different feel to it but but it is an adventure and you know she, in this case she's trying on a lot of different partners and different types of relationships as opposed to your book yeah. which is about just one in particular right no that sounds fascinating though I'll have to look it up it's called the downhill woman something eh. Because that is a really, really old-fashioned word for a streetwalker who yeah, and also would have been. Yeah. Hello, like I haven't. Well, heard 
I'm 55 and I feel like I haven't heard the word trollop in 75 years. So it's up with but, that. No, but she was referring to trollop the author, that she liked him because she's, so not herself as a trollop. Sorry. This is, mm. no, the, the author, the British author trollop, that she enjoys him. I took that the way you did, Danielle. I took it as the word trollop. So. I don't know yes. who the fuck trollop is. <laughs> It sounds like the word trollop, like who's a, a slut or or an easy woman or something. Um, confusing. No, I'm joking. It doesn't matter. Um, anyway, okay, off of trollop. <laughs> what else do I want to ask you? In the kind of relationship that you were pursuing, where you have essentially um, a dominant and a submissive person, it's... Did you feel at the beginning that you and Mr. Lucky were actually um, equal partners? Or did you feel like there was a built-in asymmetric part of the relationship to start with? I mean, I mean, because I know like the ideal is that, in fact, you're only playing it. I mean, it's like you're playing with this roles um, and you have very clear rituals about when you're in the role and when you're out of the role. But then it seemed to me there was also this other layer um, emotionally, maybe that you were more invested than he was. And again, I have not finished the book, I apologize, but this was at least what I was starting to feel. Right, no, that's a really good question. And the idea, and I do talk about this in the book is that, um, by design, we need to be equals going into the relationship. And I believe that in the very beginning, we were. But as you say, emotionally, because I fell in love with him, and he did not reciprocate. And uh, just because of some of my own personal history, in terms of, um, I've struggled my whole life with this idea of either being too much or not being enough or the really troublesome thing of being both at the same time and um, struggled with my own self-confidence and um, and also struggled with my role as a woman and uh, in relationship to men. And a lot of that came into my relationship with Mr. Lucky and it was me that brought all of that. Um, in terms of the actual, you know, the, the play, the sex that he and I had, um, all of that in that we were equals up to the point where I chose to submit to him and give him the power in those physical um, sexual encounters. Emotionally, we were not equals. Um, I was floundering and um, working through a lot of my own personal issues uh, in my relationship with him. And he was not floundering and not doing that. So in that we weren't equal. Well, another thing that really I, I had, I found very enlightening was that there are sometimes people engaged in these types of physical, well, I guess I should say these types of relationships without having sex, because that was part of the negotiation that yes, you guys did, you did want to have that. Yeah, I mean, can you just talk about that a little bit as far as like, how does that work? Like, why do people find that satisfying? Absolutely, that's a really smart question. Uh, people approach uh, BDSM for different reasons and are drawn to different parts of it. 
For some people, it's about physical sensation that doesn't have anything to do with sex or sexual contact, contact the way they define it. Um, some people are just looking for a relational connection that involves power exchange, like dominance and submission, that also might be about service tasks or um, being served by another person. Uh, it, and it might have absolutely nothing to do with how people might define sex. For me, and gratefully for him, that's not how it works. Um, for me, a big part of why I want to do this involves sexual content and sexual play. Um, I like the psychological aspects of it and the power exchange, um, but I also like the sex part and so does he. So we were very well matched in that way. You know, I took, um, I think I've brought this up in our podcast before. It's I took a course at San Francisco State University called Variations in Human Sexuality. It was very popular. Everybody knew about it because the one, it was taught in the biggest, you know, the, the one with the, the theater, right? So the, this huge um, uh, amphitheater, or sorry, theater with a couple thousand kids. And the professor brought on each week a guest to present what they do. And the, the BDSM was freaking fascinating. And I think that like people try to fire this pr professor every year, the parent, the parents of the kids write in and go, what do you mean you're showing a man all tied up on a circle and the other guy's whipping him. And they, we learn, I, I was, a I was older than 20, probably 25. Cause I went to college late these are like 19 year olds are sitting there like holy fuck and i was mm -hmm. it was it was still something i didn't see i think 25 years ago it wasn't as you know i, I who what i don't want to say mainstream because that's ridiculous but it just it wasn't something that i even thought about mm -hmm. right oh my gosh it was so it was no but it was really eye-opening and i enjoyed it i go wow that's what turns them on it turns one on because he's hurting him and it's hurting him on because he's being hurt and they have their safe word and the whole thing. I was fascinated. Yeah. The amount of communication and self-knowledge and, you know, ability to, to meet the other person where they're at. And there's so much involved in that. And um, in addition to being a therapist and a writer, I, I also teach at one of the local graduate schools in Portland. Um, and I teach in the counseling program. So I'm teaching new, new therapists. And um, I, I try to include at least a little bit of an introduction to kink in all the classes that I teach because I didn't get taught that when I was in grad school. I already knew from personal experience, but I want future therapists to know that people like to do these things. Some people like to engage in these behaviors or relationships and that it isn't necessarily problematic or it isn't you know, something that is diagnosable. Um, although there are still diagnoses in the DSM related to these things, but that's a different rant for another day. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, cause I, um, it really, like I said, this one particular class was so eye opening. And then another class, they said, if you haven't gone to a sex shop yet, if you haven't gone to good vibrations in Berkeley and San Francisco or something else, you have no idea what you're talking about. And you're not even, you know, practically having sex yet. So I'm like, okay. So I head out and like, 
the videos alone. Okay, I went to Good Vibrations recently. They have nothing. They have a bunch of dildos and nothing. Okay, it used to be this entire world of stuff to discover. You could just sit on the floor and read books if you wanted to. It was kind of like any store or the bookstore, right? And I was like, wow, I, I, I learned so much and I was fascinated. And then I was, you know, stop the judging thinking. I, you know, I was in my twenties. I was a dumbass. Now I'm like, wow, these people, you know, that's what gives them pleasure. And I'm not even saying them, like I have, I've grown up. I have, you know, have had different experiences and yeah. So, so I I just, every, time after time, I thank that professor for teaching the wonky class. It was good. I was just thinking what a fun field trip it would be for the whole class to go to good vibrations together. It would be so hilarious. Mm -hmm. They don't need videos and DVDs anymore because it's all online. That's you can just true. get it whatever you want online. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, come to this question, Meg, uh, as to kind of your your reason or reasons for writing this memoir. Part of it was the story was in me and I needed to get it out. I needed it out in the world. Um, part of it is also, I there's not enough writing about kink relationships. There's not enough. Uh, I wish there were more people writing and telling these stories, um, particularly, you know, several years ago when the whole Fifty Shades thing blew up and, you know, that was wildly popular and people were interested in, you know, trying to have a glimpse of what this world might be like. Unfortunately, it was a terrible glimpse and the writing is awful and the portrayal of kink and uh, there is no portrayal of consent in any of the that uh, trilogy or the movies. So it was people were interested and wanted to read about it, but they were not getting accurate information. And so one of the reasons I wanted to tell this story is there are real people in the world that have relationships and seek out relationships that involve pleasure and pain and dominance and submission. And I wanted people to have an opportunity to read a real life account of people who do that people who are relatively sane and lead, you know, regular-ish lives and also participate in these things. Definitely. I wanted you know, there, there to be other examples. The um, TV show with Jeffrey, what's his name? Transparent. I'm going to remember it. Yeah. The, the, the sister right after she gets divorced she she wants to have a bds experience with somebody by the way she's an actress who lives locally and i've seen her at restaurants and i went over and i said i recognize you for the tv show and then the bartender goes she's a porn actress i was like oh my god so she's a porn actress and she's in that show but you know it, yeah it was so great that it was on it was on a tv show that you know lots of folks would see yeah it was nice Yep, visibility is important. Yeah, I think your memoir will fill fill a huge gap, honestly. Thank you. Very, it is really, it's very eye opening. I mean, I had sort of the ex, the experience reading it of 
oh, how would I describe it? It reminded me a little bit of learning about a different culture, almost, you know, almost like taking an anthropology class or something, because I don't have any direct experience with it. And it does seem like another culture. So, I, I mean, I found it really fascinating um, and, yeah, just incredibly engaging. Uh, plus, I mean, you're, you're such a good writer. And I'm really glad you mentioned that Fifty Shades of Grey. Somebody handed me that book once, and I just read a few sentences, and I just thought, I couldn't possibly read this. It's, it's such garbage. It's totally written. Yeah. Yes, no, really it's terrible. It, but, it, um, but it, yeah, I don't know why. I think I was, like, trying to be a good mom or something. Maybe my kids were looking at it. But I also read Twilight, so there you have it, which at the end, I took this book and I threw it across the room. I'm like, I will not read one more word. So, we, you know, Twilight, you know, that, what's, yeah, horrible books. Right, exactly. No, and I appreciate you saying that about my writing. That's uh, really generous. And, um, you know, I do think that it is, you know, my experience of sharing this book, particularly with people who know me really well, you know, publishing a book that's this personal, I don't care if the general public reads this book, I want them to buy copies of it, that's great. Um, that's a little bit different story when I think about my siblings or um, my parents are both dead at this point. So um, I don't have to worry about that. Um, but for me, it's been really interesting rolling out this book and preparing to roll it out um, and having those conversations with the people closest to me. Um, I, I had an interesting experience with my sister. I have one sister who's still alive and um, I was having a discussion with her about whether or not I should use our sister's real name in the book. And I was having this dilemma with my sister and, and she said, well, I could probably answer that better if I had read the book. <laughs> And I said, okay. Mm -hmm. So I gave her the book to read and I was terrified um, because I was afraid of being judged. I already feel misunderstood in my family all the time. And um, she did read part of it. She had to stop. It was too uncomfortable for her to read the overtly sexual parts um, about her sister, which is fair. I'll give her that. Um, but it has... It's been interesting sharing this with my, I have five brothers um, and telling them about this book. I really don't want them to read it. I don't think they wanna go anywhere near it, um, but it's a strange experience because I'm incredibly proud of it. I have wanted to publish books my whole life and my brothers care about me and love me and want to be excited for me. So it's a really interesting line of they're proud of me, they're excited, they're not going anywhere near it. It's just a strange mix of, of interactions. Yeah. I think, you know, go ahead. I think that's fairly common when people write memoirs that family members, obviously, especially if family members are involved, but you know, even then, like maybe children or adult children, it's kind of like, I don't need to know this. Like, I'm glad you got it published and I'm happy that you wrote it, dot, dot, or, you know, but I don't really need to, to read it. And, and I think that that's, that's, you know, that's okay as long as the family's, they're supportive 
in a general way. Um, I know there's like a, there's somebody that Danielle and I know in a writing group whose husband doesn't really read anything she writes. And it, I think this bothers her, but at the same time, I think maybe it's not that uncommon for pe people who are close to just not really, it's not that they don't care. It's just like, there's something makes it uncomfortable for them or they're not ready for it or who knows. Yeah, exactly. And I have been really, you know, not just with my family, but I recently shared the book cover and the, the launch date on Facebook. And, you know, I went round and round. Was I just going to share it with part of my Facebook? Was I just going to put it out there? And um, ultimately, I chose to just put it out there. And um, people from all corners of my life have been responding to it, congratulating me, seeming really excited about it. And each time I sort of have to stop myself from offering disclaimers. Thanks for being excited for me. There's a whole lot of graphic sex in it. You might not want to read it. You know, I'm trying to like yeah. both right. promote a book and stop. So. Right. And that goes back to our, you know, premise of this, of this podcast, when we named it, it's like, we're always being silenced. And if you have your truth to tell, then you're telling it. And if some people can't handle it, they can not read it. They can do what they're going exactly. to do because it's your story to tell. And that's why, you know, we started this be from, from our classes at Esalen with all of our writing teachers and, you know, and I'm embarrassed to say that. And I, you know, and I'm, I'm a major depressive and have crazy whack anxiety and I'm on 15 drugs. Oh, people say that, you know, it's like all about being secret. Yes. And if you have a book, you want to tell your story then tell it. Right. right. It's going to be, maybe it's going to be weird. Right. May like you don't even know. Right. Yeah. Right. I, you know, people who are saying, Oh, I can't wait to read it. And I, you know, okay. <laughs> Buy copies of it. We'll see what happens. And I have no idea what kind of feedback my best friend has already agreed to be the person who reads reviews for me and only lets me read the ones that aren't terrible or, you know, personally attacking me. So I'm grateful that I have that, that covered. So good. That's, that is a good idea to have sort of a filter, but I think, well, I think sort of two things. One is I think that you will be, you'll be surprised in good ways of the kind of response you get from strangers who will just really come out of nowhere and, and you'll be like, oh gosh, thank you. And I think you, you are so brave in doing it. I think it will give other people permission to tell their stories or also just to feel comfortable with their own story. Um, I mean, there's so much shame attached to so many things and it's different for everyone. But I think when you read a book that is completely open and honest, um, it is kind of a gift to the rest of the world. It really is. Mm -hmm. And so you should be proud of that. You know, just putting, you. putting yourself out there and being fearless about it. That takes a lot of personal courage. It really does. 
Yeah, and I wouldn't have been able, like what you're saying, I hope that my book does that for other people. And the writers who did all of this before I did have really created space and created permission for me to do that. Writers like Lydia and Carol Queen and Melissa Phoebos and, you know, other folks out there that have already been putting out such personal, important details about their lives. And um, all of those writers I just mentioned have blurbed my book. And I'm so honored that, you know, these people who paved the way for me um, have then read my book and, and said nice things about it. And, um, but like I said about Lydia earlier, it's true about these other writers too. There wouldn't, I wouldn't have known there was room for my story if these other writers hadn't written theirs first. And so I do hope I can, I can create that spaciousness for other writers who are up and coming. And one thing that I've been really honored by in my writing classes and when people have read drafts of it, um, a lot of people are not involved in kink. They don't, they're not familiar with this world. And people have often told me that I do a really good job of writing those aspects of the book in ways that are not scary. Because some of that stuff can be scary. You know, the things that are happening or, you know, the pain being, um, the pain happening in these exchanges. And my point is not to scare people. My point is to share my experience. And um, I've been told I take really good care of my readers. Um, and I hope that that's how people find it when the book is out there and being read. Yeah. Um, because I don't, it's not, that stuff isn't there to, to titillate or scare people. Um, it's there um, to just share my experience. Well, hey, I think it really comes through. I mean, it, it is like, you can tell the intent is not to scare, titillate, uh, you know, that, that, that your, your intentions as a writer are very pure and honest. Um, it you really know does what? come through, yeah. We would love to hear you read a piece of your writing. And if you have that prepared, we will listen right now. Okay, great. So Meg, why don't you read us a section from your book, A Year with Mr. Lucky. This piece is called Owning Me. Owning me was written into the game, but not like this. Not a splintered heart and brittle distance, not unmet longing. I wasn't supposed to fall in love. I want to read a book he hasn't written yet. One that explicates the poem of us and explains how I got under his skin in ways he doesn't usually allow. His clever prose would pretend disdain for my verbose devotion, but belie the truth that he loves every syllable. I want his reflections on the half dozen scenes we did together, scenes he crafted and delivered upon me with exquisite creativity. I want to explore the intersections of our words and bodies of power and attunement, of submission and silence. I'm waiting for patience and for words to convey the synergy of emotions roiling within me. Sadness sings a solemn, lonely song. Anger is acutely aware of his absence. Curiosity cracks my composure when he won't communicate clearly. His radio silence is the wrong kind of sadism. 
Minutes bleed into hours, hemorrhage into days, flood into weeks. I am waiting to let go, to let what we had become just a collection of memories in the past tense. Still, the weight of waiting wears on me again. He is distant and guarded, but it wasn't always this way. In the beginning, oceans of words spilling from two directions tossed intrigue and interest between us. There were rules of engagement, but my heart doesn't follow rules. The wrong part of me is owned by him. Buying it back will cost every ounce of courage I can produce. I will pay for it with every pore of worthiness I embody. I will need to remember that a broken heart is not the end of anything. It is a beginning. Beautiful, beautiful. I just, I just love it. I, I, I'm so happy for you that you wrote this gorgeous prose and that it's going to be born and the world will read it. It's just Thank beautiful. You. Meg, tell us again the publication date, publisher name, whatever you would like to share with us about when the book is coming out. Absolutely. So the publication date is February 8th, 2021. And the publisher is Sincere Publishing, and that's spelled S-I-N-C-Y-R um, Publishing. And uh, there's a, a link available for ordering eBooks. The print link is um, not quite up yet, but it will also be coming out in print. Um, so that, those are the details. You'll have to do a virtual book tour. I'm working on setting that up right now. <laughs> I'm in the process of connecting with other folks who are launching books in 2021 and trying to do some readings so that we can get, you know, some of the book tour experience, even though everything is remote. Um, and thank you so much for including me on the podcast. It was really fun to get to talk to you both and um, I'm really excited that we got to have this conversation. Uh, our Thank you. I was, I really love it. I'm so glad it worked out that we could actually get together and talk about it. Yeah, it was so nice that you reached out and that Monica connected us. Um, one day we can move around again and I'll, we'll come see you in Portland because all of our author <laughs> friends live there. <laughs> exactly. So that makes sense. I can't wait to meet you in person, yeah. but this was lovely to get we, to talk to you both. We'd be delighted. Thanks again, Meg. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can get more information about it on facebook.com backslash Sharla Danielle podcast.